welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Mad in America podcast. I'm your host for today, Ayurdhidhar, assistant professor at Mount Mary University and a science news writer at Mad in America. If you've not already, go check out some interesting news on MIA this week. There is a really interesting blog post about psychiatry's recent attempts to distance itself from the chemical imbalance theory. And there is a new study about online communities providing support to service users who are going through psychiatric drug withdrawal. On that note, we have someone today who knows a lot about survivor and service user movements. We have with us Dr. Helen Spandler, who is a professor of mental health studies at the University of Central Lancashire, the managing editor of Asylum, which is a radical mental health nonprofit magazine, which I think is going strong now for about 35 years or so. And she's also the principal investigator on a new research project about the role of zines in contesting mental health knowledge and practice. Dr. Spanlow, welcome to Mad in America. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great, uh, it's a great honor to, to talk to you. All right. So um, today we're going to talk about mental suffering as disability, a compassion deficit in mental health care, psychiatric neglect, and maybe more stuff. But before we begin, could you give our listeners some general idea about your approach, your stance, and also what brought you to these issues? Was there like a defining moment or was it like a slow thing? Just a basic general idea about yourself and your work. This area has defined my life really, I guess, in in one way or another. Um, I grew up with sort of mental health issues in my family and, you know, I've had my own kind of sort of struggles, you know, up to a point and I've always kind of found it really um, difficult area you know and I've wor- I worked in in mental health uh, for, for for a while in mostly advocacy kind of services sort of self and group advocacy and I've I've always sort of had a I, I sort I guess I was quite inclined early on to have a kind of an instinctual kind of crit- critical approach to psychiatry and psychology and all, all this kind of stuff my main point of reference has always been sort of the views and experiences of psychiatric survivors, I guess, you know, in one way or other, which is how I came to this field. My general approach has become more and more, it started off, I guess, more ideologically informed and it's become less and less so and I've become more and more critical of ideologically driven critiques. Um, and I suppose more and more thinking that there's no easy answers to a lot of the complexities that that we're working with in this field. So I increasingly got into research to really try and understand some of the complexities that I was facing with either um, trying to support family members or friends or um, working in advocacy and stuff that never was quite as straightforward as I hoped it would be, you know, that I could go in and, you know, it was just as, you know, I found lots of tensions and contradictions and conflicts that I hadn't really anticipated. So I've always sort of been interested in looking for uncomfortable truths. You know, if we have an idea of what the world is like and to look at how things might not be as they seem. So I've always been interested in researching things that actually, you know, put it, put it in scientific terms, kind of, you know, don't confirm our, by our confirmation bias, if you like, you know, that actually sort of shine a light on things in a different way. Um, so I've always been really interested in trying to understand that. And, and also increasingly taking a sort of non-binary approach to these issues, you know, sort of instead of a sort of either or, um, or sort of, you know, lots of ways in which the world is structured in a very binary way. And I suppose I'm increasingly sort of seeing that as a problem, I guess, and trying to sort of 
have a non-binary kind of approach to these issues um, that doesn't try and see the world in simplistic sort of, you know, binary opposites, if you like. And I guess along with that is to sort of being really suspicious of any too reductionist approach to some of these Mm. issues, you know, either socially, you know, usually we talk about, you know, psychiatric reductionism, if you like, or biological Mm. reductionism, which Mm. psychiatry, you know, has been accused of. Um, but also, you know, social reductionism could be problematic or, or psychological reductionism as well. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of increasingly sort of suspicious of anything that tries to reduce complex human um, dynamics and suffering into sort of neat, you know, either binaries or reduction in terms of, you know, it being all about the social or about the psychological and I think we tend, we can easily slip into that, particularly as mental health professions are kind of, you know, you're either a social worker, a psychiatrist or a psychologist, you know. So it's increasingly sort of take a politically pragmatic approach to stuff, which really tries to center human suffering. You know, what's the best thing we can do in this context to reduce human suffering and support ourselves and each other? Um, and, you know, this thing about sort of centering psychiatric survivor knowledge, you know, rather than looking for the big theorists, you know, the kind of, whether it's, you know, people often kind of take off the shelf, you know, Foucault or Lacan or all of this and this sort of stuff, but actually looking to what we might call organic intellectuals, you know, people who, um, you know, psychiatric survivors or activists who've learned their own knowledge. And it is, it is just as theoretical, if you like, just because it's not got the big theory attached to it you know, and right. sort of look to that kind of knowledge. And it's often psychiatric survivors that bring up the complexities that mm-hmm. show up that some of our theories and ideologies don't necessarily fit. Um, but I guess we'll get onto that somehow. I remember, you know, what you're talking about, that there is a complexity in these narratives. Uh, Gayatri Spivak talks about that, that when you actually listen to the subaltern, you will never get simple, easy answers. There is a lot of heterogeneity in what people want. And it kind of goes back to your article on saying that, Some psychiatric survivors want more psychiatry and some of them want less because it's kind of the only option we have. And even that's getting gutted because of welfare, you know, changes. Let me um, kind of go back to what you said. You said you're kind of moving away from ideologically driven critiques. Uh, So can you just in a sentence tell us what that means? I just want to, you know, clarify it for everyone. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I mean, I guess anything that sort of has a sort of totalizing narrative, I guess, around, you know, what... You know, whether it's, I mean, you know, we can be informed by all sorts of like feminist, Marxist, you know, anti-psychiatry, all those things, which I think are really important, maybe as have as milestones. But when we start to say, you know, I'm going to take a position in relation to something, you know, and I mean, I start with the ideology, with the theory, if you like, rather than starting with the practice or starting with what's the conditions on the ground, if you like, yeah. sort of the material conditions of people's lives. That's what matters because I think probably we'll come on to that. But for me, it's all about it's all about context. Mm-hmm. And we have to understand the context, whether it's a historical context or current context. And I think having an ideology in mind, you know, whether it's a theory of something, whatever it is, if we take that off the shelf and try and impose it on the world and impose it on human suffering, whatever that is, so whether it's the recovery model, whether it's a trauma model, whether it's any of these things which in and of themselves can be really helpful. Um, But once we sort of start to see the world through a particular theory or lens, you know, I think it it can get us into trouble, particularly when it comes to human suffering. Because what we're really talking about when we're talking about this is the diversity of human experience. Um, And I don't think there is a theory that can 
they can certainly be influential. And I think it's really important to have that as a touchstone. I was sort of influenced very much by Marxism or historical materialism, if you like. But for me, that's not about, oh, what did Marx say about whatever? It's saying, let's look at the material conditions of people's lives and right. see what the conflicts are there. I think in mental health, there tends to be, and in, probably in the world, we like certainty. We like something to pin a things on and particularly if you're working in mental health services you want you want a theory you want to be able to use something and I'm, I teach a lot of social workers you know and they want to know well, what do we do what's the theory what theory do we use for this you know and I, have, and I often try to sort of break that down say you know what really matters is being alongside somebody <laughs> trying to understand their material conditions what they need at that time what's best in that moment and that's usually Big theory doesn't actually help us in, in those. I mean, it's, it's helpful to have to know the theory, mm-hmm. you know, and for it to be in the back of our mind. But once we start to be driven by it, I think that's the problem. Does that, yeah, does that make experience sense? experience just we force it to conform to that bad theory that we have. Exactly. Absolutely. Especially I've seen on, in psychology and mental health stuff, it, does, it tends to happen a lot. Let me jump on to our next question. You've written a lot about this, and there has been a push to see psychological suffering as a disability, um, especially using the social model. And um, in the simplest words, the social model of disability says that people may have impairments, but they're disabled because of barriers in a society. And I know there is even complexity within that model in which there are, there are some you know, people who are saying, how do we define impairments and stuff? But the question is that Could you tell us what are the consequences of this disabled identity for a person who uses mental health services? Like just on this person who who's using the services and is psychologically distressed and in pain, uh, what are the benefits or the complications of identifying as disabled as opposed to something else? This is where I guess the thing about the context of people's lives is really important because, I mean, I started getting into this partly because Um, if I just take a step back, when I started sort of um, teaching social workers about 15 so years ago, um, they quite liked the social model of disability, which was good because I, I like it too. I think it's really you know, helpful in terms of shifting our consciousness around, as you said, stop thinking of the person as the problem, as looking at what we can do to the context. Um, but what I found was that social workers kind of, what they did was that they sort of took the social model and they just put it on top of what they saw to be unproblematic psychiatric concepts. So they took it as read that somebody had this thing called schizophrenia or whatever, and the social model meant that we needed to look at their housing and employment and stuff. Now, that's a good start in a way, because housing, employment, things like that are really central to people's lives, obviously. But it kind of meant that the, the psychiatric kind of thing itself, the diagnostic stuff or, or how we understand people's suffering wasn't necessarily problematized. It wasn't, you know, it was a kind of quite a surface or weak um, understanding. It didn't really problematize other, other issues. So I wanted to sort of really think about that. And then of course the UN convention of the rights of people with disabilities came along and, you know, a lot, you know, sizable number of psychiatric survivors thought this is a really useful way to go. If we define ourselves as having a disability, then we can have, you know, we can piggyback on the, the rights sort of stuff around the convention, which is, again was probably some useful stuff in that. But some psychiatric survivors I knew had problematized that many years ago and said, well, there are some difficult consequences for people if you shoehorn this into a social model of disability. And some of the problems was that the social model of disability has a kind of uh, a, a distinction between disability and impairment. So what is the impairment when it comes to mental distress? 
um, that becomes a difficulty. So, so using psychosocial disability, I think, is a helpful shift in that. But I guess what it does do, I mean, the, the social model of disability kind of started out, was driven by people who had long-standing, long-term um, physical impairments. Um, but obviously with mental distress, you know, we don't want to go down, we don't necessarily want to go down the road that's saying because you get this psychiatric diagnosis that you will have an impairment for the rest of your life. Like, for example, if you, you know, if you need a wheelchair because of a, of a, a born impairment that you will need that for the rest of your life, whatever. And it, it felt like it could be quite problematic to sort of impose that. But I think in relation to people's lives, I think it's very context driven because if you having a psychosocial dis disability can be helpful in some contexts unhelpful in others and I think what we have to do is try and tease that out again so rather than saying and I went into this thinking and I, I put I co-edited this book as, as you know about um, sort of trying to understand really the question we went in with was was is a social model of disability helpful or not to um, mental health mental health politics what I ended up with, that's a stupid question. Is it yes or no? Because yes and no. <laughs> and we were never going to come up with a, oh, yes, you know, yes, we've decided it is a great idea and this is how we're going to do it. Or no, it's not and junk it. You know, that actually what we need to do is work with it and try and understand the consequences or otherwise for different people and what they need and want in a particular context and I think that can depend that can depend on whether you want access to services and what particular service you want access to so sometimes um, psychosocial disability can help with that getting social security benefits or um, welfare payments or whatever can rest on certain things like that that can be helpful in terms of that the UN convention was important around asserting rights so I think for that for people with psychosocial disabilities or, you know, psychiatric diagnosis or whatever, to be able to say, you know, we're in this convention, therefore we can demand that we don't get certain treatments or whatever, you know, that and we, can, we can use that framework for asserting certain rights. I think that's really helpful too. But it has some other consequences, I think, that some people wanted to sort of try to understand that might not be helpful um, and then some people felt that we needed a parallel social model, if you like, that was that was sat alongside it, that didn't sort of say, oh, this is wrong or this is right, but that, you know, maybe psychiatric survivors need their own sort of model. Um, so, you know, I would say that there's lots of really helpful things that you can do with the social model to make it work. Um, for example, stuff around neurodiversity, sort of understanding the world through that lens you know, and understanding people that maybe have psychological diversities in some way. And that if we see people having psych psychological diversity, then what we need to think about is how do we adapt society to work with those diversities? So right. that's a kind of useful so social model. Mm -hmm. I useful. Or the trauma-informed approach is, I think, works well with a social model. So there's lots of ways I think you can adapt to that. What would using this kind of a disability model mean for psychiatric diagnosis and where does it fit with the DSM and the ICD? Well, it's interesting because it could fit quite well, actually, mm -hmm. in a way, because if you did what my, a lot of my social work students did, then you can just say, okay, so this person has 
this diagnosis, they have this illness, this, dis this um, disorder or whatever, and we need to adapt to that. Um, so in, in a sense, it could work quite well, although, you know, I guess most people that would take a, a social model would tend to sort of be more critical than that, which I guess is one of the reasons why the psychiatric survival movement has been a little bit cautious about adopting the social model. Mm -hmm. So I think it could fit and it also has potential difficulties with that as well. Because I think a deep social model starts to interrogate those very things that we call diagnoses and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so you can have a sort of surface weak social model and a sort of deeper social model as well, which kind of gets into how those things get constructed. And you've written about this, haven't you? you know, how these things get constructed at different levels culturally and socially. Mm -hmm. And stuff. So I guess it, you know, I don't think it, I, I think you can have both with that really. I don't mm -hmm. think it necessarily, I don't think it, it goes with junking it or keeping it. The other thing I'd say about all about context is all about the context of implementation, mm -hmm. you know, so how are these things implemented? And I guess the other thing is, I mean, I'd take a sort of, you know, Joanna Moncrief's work, I don't know if you know mm -hmm. Joanna Moncrief, mm -hmm. who's written quite a lot about a uh, drug-centered approach to mm -hmm. psychiatric um, medication um, rather than a disease-centered approach you know and what I think she means by that is you know rather than seeing drugs as treating illnesses we see them as psychiatric drugs if you like we see them as having particular effects right. that may or may not be helpful in particular contexts and I think we can say the same about diagnoses as well you know I think in some contexts they have particular effects mm -hmm. that might be helpful to someone and in other contexts they have effects that might be unhelpful mm -hmm. so rather than having I mean this is where I sort of think we can't have a pro or anti-diagnosis approach it doesn't help us because it again it depends on the context so you might need a diagnosis to get access to something you know or it may be helpful for you in a particular context but it may be really unhelpful in another context so I think to adapt Joanna's sort of approach to to medication, to diagnosis, I think would be quite helpful. And then that gets us away because I think there's so many polarised debates going on at the moment about whether we should uh, get rid of psychiatric diagnosis completely or whether it's helpful or not. And I, again, I think it's a really unhelpful binary, you know, either or. And actually, I think, again, if we think about people's lives and circumstances and what they need in particular contexts, mm -hmm. and that can shift and change. Absolutely, yes. I think... I'll what you're saying reminds me of how people use formulations, right? So some of them would use the diagnosis and with the formulation, while others kind of prefer to not have the diagnostic category, because again, it should possibly, probably depend on the person in front of you. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of obvious really when you think about yeah. it, but it gets, but it gets so lost, doesn't it? I think in, there was an interesting um, uh, thing I noticed on social media recently where, you know, someone was saying how her, mental health team I think had used started using formulation rather than diagnosis mm -hmm. um and a sort of trauma-informed formulation mm -hmm. and then what happened is they started writing these complex formulations about her history which included all sorts of personal stuff about her abuse that she didn't really want to be shared across mm -hmm. lots of different teams and she felt like she lost control over it and I think the mental health workers were obviously thinking, oh, we're being really, we're being really, you know, trauma informed and, you know, we're, we're doing this formulation thing and that's really helpful because we're, and we're junking psychiatric diagnosis. But the woman said, you know what, can you give me the diagnosis back? Because mm. I didn't, I think I didn't particularly like it, but it was better than telling everybody about my history that is personal and very private to me and I don't want circulating. And she saw like lots of things, lots of notes being circulated across 
you know, Teams and shared with her GP and all that stuff. Then I thought, and I hadn't really thought about that before. So it was really an insight for me into, yeah. you know, the consequences of quite well-intentioned moves to, but actually had quite negative consequences for that person. And that, I guess that's what I mean by listening to psychiatric survivors, mm-hmm. because there was another example um, in, in the UK, some people recently, um, put together, um, psychologists put together a, a report on depression. The British Psychological Society put a new report on, out on depression. It was quite, a, in many ways, a report that I would have completely signed up to many, you know, a few years ago. It, you know, it's very socially informed. It says, you know, we need to problematise this idea of depression as an illness and we need to see it as an experience. And it had a lot of really good stuff in it. But then I, I read a blog from a psychiatric survivor that said that reading, she'd read the report and it absolutely devastated her mm-hmm. because she'd spent her whole life being told, you know, that she was all in her head, she just needed to pull herself together. And, she, you know, she'd, she'd experienced severe clinical depression over many years and really struggled to accept her experience and understand it and to kind of get validation and support for it. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then when she read this report, the depression was all inverted commas, like it didn't really... And, she, and, and, yeah. and I hadn't, again, I hadn't thought how that feels for people, you know, to have their experience sort of in inverted commas in a way. And I've always done that. I've always put mental illness yeah. in inverted commas because I think it's a problematic concept. But I've never really considered what the impact of that is on somebody. Mm-hmm. So that's why I say, you know, about this thing about, you know, responding to human suffering needs to be our f- foremost concern rather than do we think diagnosis is right or wrong? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, that's not, working with what the person needs in the context at that time. And that was a real, those things were real eye-openers to me where I've started to really sort of think, we need to really kind of think about how these things land with people, you know, how they're experienced. Um, And that is, again, very different according to the person and and, and their context and the culture and all those sorts of things Mm -hmm. that we need to take into account. Absolutely. Um, It reminds me of uh, Daniel Ehrman wrote about, in our work, we kind of really love the work of peer counsellors and they're really important and everything. But she had this one case of uh, one peer counsellor who had such a difficult time with his identity as now an insider because he was working kind of around the same hospitals that he was at one point involuntarily hospitalised in. But now he had the key to those doors. So how do you deal with being now the man, but also somebody who's fought against this. And uh, it, again, it talks about how how complex these things are, if, despite the fact that we would like simpler answers in one direction or the other. What do you think would be the consequences, the benefits and the complications of including people um, with psychosocial disabilities in research and policy making? How do you think this would transform psychiatric practice? Yeah, I mean, again, this is a hugely complex area, isn't it? Because it's so easy for us to say, and people say this all the time, we just need to give put people in charge, you know, hand everything over to service users and survivors and everything. And that's great instinct, obviously. That's where we should be starting. And we're nowhere near that. You know, we're still very much like, you know, trying to prise open the doors a lot of the time. But I think one of the difficulties with it is that I think there's a lack of honesty about some of the challenges of doing that and doing that really well and authentically. Ultimately, psychiatric survivors are going to differ on many different levels and they're going to disagree as much as anyone else about stuff, you know, and there's no homogeny. There's no kind of unified. I mean, I think there are certain things that survivors agree on pretty much, but they're not many, but there are some, we might get onto some of those later, but there are some, I would say, but, 
But on the whole, there's, you know, there's such diametrically opposed views, you know. I mean, for example, just on something as controversial as ETT, you know, you can get psychiatric survivors that are convinced that it has ruined their lives. Mm -hmm. But you also get psychiatric survivors that are convinced that it has saved their lives. Now, you can't get more different than that. Yeah. Now, what do you do? Do you put the, do you just say, well, I don't like ECT, so I'm just going to pick the ones that don't like it. And, or mm -hmm. I think ECT is good, so I'm going to pick, you know, what do you have to, you, if you're going to do this seriously, you have to include both perspectives. You have to, and you have to, and that's what I mean about uncomfortable truths, I think, mm -hmm. you know, and also there's a lot of silencing around some of, some of the dynamics involved in survivor politics, for example, that can be, as, as in any politics, you know, there's a lot of disagreement, tension, um, sometimes bullying even, sometimes, you know, the dynamics involved in any sort of group or social movement. And I think there's a tendency to kind of, over, again, oversimplify and to think, okay, it's just, all we need to do is give them the control. If only they had the control, things would be great, you know. And of course, that's, you know, that, you know, there's lots of positives about that. And I do think, gone to your question, that if we did it honestly and we started to deal with some of the complexities and the diversity of views and some of the complex dynamics involved in involving people, I guess what, um, what that would do would be to, to ask really difficult questions. Um, because I think what psychiatric survivors do really brilliantly is to ask those really challenging questions. And I, again, you know, I've, I mean, I remember, um, I mean, we've published lots of this stuff in asylum over the years, you know, and I remember one really fascinating piece um, about prescription abolition. A survivor talked about, you know, let's abolish the prescription system and give it to the, put it into the hands of service users you know, maybe with in, con in con collaboration with pharmacists or whatever. So get rid of the, the, you know, the people who prescribe the drugs and just get, you know, and, and that's a really challenging thought, you know, because it makes you think, well, why is it that certain people have control over administration, mm -hmm. administering these things and other people don't? And it really pushes our thinking. And I think that's what um, psychiatric survivors do. And I remember my first piece of research years ago, 25 years ago, maybe now, um, talking to young people who self-harmed, mm -hmm. you know, really challenged my thinking ar around, you know, why, you know, wh why did we assume that self-harm is necessarily in and of itself a bad, damaging thing, which is what we thought back then. I know things have shifted greatly since then because of um, what self-harmers and psychiatric survivors have done. But it really sort of pushes our thinking if we allow that to happen and if we allow people the space to be able to really and support and facilitate that, mm -hmm. then we can start to really, those difficult questions can start to be really thought about and addressed. But only, I think, if we don't sweep the difficulties under the carpet mm -hmm. and just pretend it's just an easy transfer of power. Because I think the problem is, and the same with sort of critical professionals and psychiatric survivors and all of us, is that those dynamics that we're trying to sort of struggle against if you like or struggle with mm -hmm. we just we often reproduce right you know the systems we're trying to um we're trying to challenge if you like we often reproduce in our un understandably in in our own ways of organizing and our own ways mm -hmm. of relating and it's hard to sort of um shake that off i think but mm -hmm. i think we can only but i think we then we need to be more honest about some of the difficulties of doing that it doesn't but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it yeah it totally means we should do it but we have to do it with more open-mindedness, honesty. And also we have to invest in, 
in working with those difficulties. We don't just say, oh, we'll just have a couple of people on a board and we'll, or we'll just hand the money over or whatever. It's, you know, it's a lot more complex than that. But I think it ultimately it will, you know, if we do it in, and we've seen it over the years, how psychiatric survivors, sorry, I can't I say psychiatric no, survivors, no, no. but people with psych, we don't usually say, it's, it's important to say actually, because I'm talking about the UK context when I'm talking a lot. And um, I like the term psychiatric, psychosocial disability but it's not something that has been really picked up in the UK yet mm-hmm. I don't think hence I talk about psychiatric survivors but and I think the term psychosocial disability also embraces lots of other things broader than psychiatric survivors if you like so I think it is helpful because you know it can include people with neurodiversity people with all kinds of you know physical and mental health kind of conditions that, are, that overlap if you like it can include a much more broader range Right. things so I think it you know and I think then we can start because I think one of the things we need to do is learn from different experiences and movements for example like the neurodiversity movement people mm-hmm. who've um, experienced medically unexplained symptoms you know things that get labeled chronic fatigue syndrome or mm-hmm. ME or various other things um, and whose experience has often been psychologized or psychiatrized mm-hmm. I think we can learn a lot from people who've had that experience and people with neurodiverse or things that have been called autism or the autistic spectrum or whatever. And so, and lots of ways in which we could learn from each other about how we can work together to adapt our society in ways that would, going back to the social model of disability, would be, would be really helpful. So I think that's where bringing people together is a really helpful way to do that and start to really learn from each other's experiences. Absolutely. And it's at such a disservice to service users and survivors to just expect that they would all have agree with each other and just have this one homogenous voice and, you know, things would be simple. It is um, this kind of um, it's condescending or something, you know, like there is no diversity in thought and experience of this group of people. Absolutely. Why wouldn't we? You know, it's human diversity, isn't it? We should we should celebrate. And, and I guess one of the things I try and do as the Asylum magazine is to open a space for that diversity mm-hmm. because there's lots of voices that still aren't heard. Mm-hmm. You know, there's lots of voices of people who are really marginalised and maybe don't have a voice in different ways and, you know, don't feel represented in the mainstream or in the sort of critical alternative either. So there's lots of this huge amounts of experience we've yet to hear. And we really need to hear that diversity because it's not until we do that we're going to really start to build something that's, that, that's hopefully better for all, us all. So you've written about the importance of compassion in mental health care, but you have a very different take on compassion. I mean, normally we think of compassion as this internal quality within an individual, but you say it's just as much dependent upon structures and contexts and policies and relations. So could you say more, but kind of specifically talk about what is it specifically about our current mental health culture that makes it difficult for mental health workers to, to show this compassion, to connect, even when, you know, when they want to? It's a huge question that, yeah, I mean, there's all the big obvious stuff, you know, the fact that we have a kind of a neoliberal capitalist kind of system which individualizes us which can, which pits us against each other mm. you know that um, individualizes our, our problems that um, sees us as the problem that on our solutions to our problems is to go and buy more or to be better and there's always criticizing us that we're never good enough because in if we're not good enough we'll always keep buying things to make ourselves feel better and all that sort of stuff um, so there's all those kind of big stuff that, that that's out there and in mental health services obviously there's huge kind of resource 
issues and services have become more and more kind of individualized. There's less and less community focused projects and services. And when I, when I, I was always passionate about kind of collective community type provision, you know, therapeutic communities, um, which I know aren't a panacea and there's lots of uh, kind of problems with them, but sort of more collective types of provision where people would support each other and we'd kind of create the context in which compassion could happen. Mm -hmm. Because I I guess that's the point is that I don't see it again either or it's either compassion in the individual or compassion in society, but you can't have one without the other. And they go together. We kind of mirrors each other. So unless we we create contexts which are more compassionate, and I think the problem with our current society is it's it's so not compassionate. And there's all this talk about self care, and you know um, empathy and all that sort of stuff. But really, it kind of often boils down to buying more stuff for yourself. <laughs> That's yeah, often what it boils down to, isn't it? It's like you know. Oh, you deserve it. You're worth it. So come buy something more, you know, that's kind of rather than a sort of deeper view of compassion, you know, which is a real sense of connecting with with our own suffering and the suffering of others. And that's what compassion really is. But if we have a culture, a broader culture that doesn't really want to know about people's suffering because of course there is much more talk about mental health issues now but we don't really want to know the depths of people's suffering until we're able to do that as a society and as individuals then it's very hard to create more compassionate kind of context so it's it's a big ask to because I'm really asking for a change in society but obviously it's not I mean this is I talk a lot about prefigurative you know politics you know that we have to be the change we want to be see in the world you know there's no point saying we've got to change this the world to be like this if we're not prepared to do the work ourselves mm-hmm. to be you know to support ourselves and each other we have to do both again it's not either or it's not either changing ourselves or changing society but we can one doesn't happen without the other it has to work together um and I guess mental health services are increasingly uncompassionate. The same with with health services as a whole. In the UK, you know, our national health service is getting battered and it's got battered for a long, long time. And it's getting, you know, it's, it's threadbare now. Um, and it wasn't great to start with, you know, mental health services in the national health service were never great, but really they are, you know, and people working in them are struggling themselves, you know, to hold their head up. To above water if you like it's very hard to be compassionate to others if you're struggling with workload you know with no support for yourself for colleagues no you know no supervision no no space in which you can get any um support you know all that kind of stuff is being really and 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 more and more sort of man, what we call new managerialism in a way you know people focusing on you know I mean teaching social workers for example you know we used to teach relationship-based social work practice and now it's really all about gatekeeping it's about assessing people paperwork all the rest of it you know that and it's very hard to because we know compassion comes from being alongside somebody and and being with them Mm. and if you're in front of a computer or you're with paper filling in paperwork all the time Mm. you cannot generate that sort of um, so there's lots of ways in which we are being increasingly distanced from from each other. Um, and it's a, so it's a huge challenge, I think. You've written about lesbians as psychiatric survivors. 
Mm. And how many of their stories remained unknown. And until I read your article, I, I did not know about it either. Um, so what was it that you found? Um, could you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, so the background to this was, um, so people probably know, um, it's a well-trodden sort of story about, you know, homosexuality being used to be seen as a mental illness in the DSM and all the rest of it. And there was a big struggle to take it out of the DSM and a big campaign, gay liberation, all the rest of it. And that's a really important sort of history, part of our history. And that was always something that fascinated me and felt that it was really important in terms of so the imp impact of social movements and stuff like that. Um, in the UK, people know about aversion therapy, I guess, where um, homosexual men particularly were... Um, uh, and this didn't just happen in the UK. There's some really interesting research coming out now, actually, about, you know, where well, across the globe where some, some of this stuff happened. But the UK were particularly enthusiastic about doing this well some psychologists were particularly enthusiastic behavioral psychologists so would um to try and correct people's homosexuality was to treat them behaviorally in a sort of simplistic behavioral way you know so if you if you view pictures of um people of the same sex you would get an electric shock or given drugs to make you sick basically it's to try and decondition you so it's seen as a conditioned response a, a learnt behavior um, rather than something that you're either gay or not, or, or a choice, or a, a various ways in which you might see sexuality. And there's been quite a bit of research about how gay men, some gay men, were given um, aversion therapy, because in the UK, homosexuality was criminalised, uh, male homosexuality was criminalised, female homosexuality wasn't. So often what happened, men would go through the um, criminal justice system if they were arrested because of homosexual activity. And they were offered a choice of either being criminalised or having treatment, if you like. And some of the treatments they got was aversion therapy. Um, but I was always fascinated by thinking, well, what happened to women? There's no stories there about what happened to women. You know, did women get this too? I don't know, you know. Um, so I managed to get a little bit of funding to, to do um, myself and Sarah Carr to do some research, to archive research to try and find out. This was all about just about England. We just wanted to focus on that because we knew there'd been quite a lot of um, coverage of gay men and aversion therapy not a lot but some you know we knew a bit of that about that story which is really important um tommy dickinson who was an old colleague of mine wrote uh, uh, curing queers about that history so we wanted to find out you know what happened to women to same-sex attracted women or lesbian bisexual women or, or, or however people wanted to identify you know usually lesbian back in the day or female homosexual this is so this is post-war this is sort of uh, 1960s onwards, uh, late 50s, early 60s, into the late 60s. Um, so we did some sort of archive research to kind of find out. And this is, again, these uncomfortable truths that we were looking at. And we wanted to, we, we sort of wanted to find them and we didn't want to find them. Part of us wanted to find stories because we wanted to go, yeah, see, they did it to women too and how horrible these people <laughs> were making them do this. But also, obviously, we didn't want to find them. We didn't want to, to know that women had been through this horrible experience. Um, so what we so we did some archive work um, to, to try and look at, let, we looked through lesbian archives, through women's archives, through psychiatric survivor archives and stuff like that. We found out that there were a few women that, we, we found about 10 examples of women who'd experienced aversion therapy and, and, and sort of some examples of, of um, women who'd experienced other forms of um, treatment, but, but really scattered, small examples, very few examples. Um, but we felt they were really important examples because, um, you know, 
those stories haven't really been heard. And it's always assumed, I think, that version there was probably given to gay men. And maybe people think maybe it was given to women too, or maybe it wasn't. We don't really know. So we felt that even though it was small numbers, it was still important. But also what we found was that there were lots of examples, no, lots, there were equal numbers of examples of women who'd gone to see the psychiatrist or their doctor to say, I want to be treated for this because I feel so ashamed and guilty and unhappy about my sexualities. Of course, it, was, it wasn't accepted in the 50s and early 60s. Um, and therefore, you know, there was very little chance for women to find, get a more positive sense of their sexuality or identity. And we found equal numbers of examples of, of the doctor saying, well, there isn't anything wrong with you. You don't need to be treated. What you need to do is find um, other people who have similar sexuality to you. And we found some lovely examples of psychiatrists saying, you know, well, there's this Gateways Club, which was a local lesbian club in London, you know, maybe you could go there, you know, and lots of, we did, not lots, I mean, when I say lots of examples, there's similar numbers of examples of positive examples as negative examples. We felt they're also important too, because we need to hear the diversity. We don't just, again, we don't just hear the stories that bolster our particular Mm. ideology whether it's to be anti-psychiatry or anti-psychology or whatever we need to know what actually you know we need to know, know the and, w- and what we found was that people you know there were a small number of psychologists and psychiatrists who were prepared to treat homosexuality in women uh, in this way you know with aversion therapy and other treatments but they were often experimental they weren't mainstream but they were endorsed within the particular hospital they were conducted at, but it wasn't a sort of general mainstream treatment. Um, And the practice differed immensely. And we also have to remember that at the time, you know, psychology and psychiatry was embedded or is, you know, is embedded within the broader culture and society. Mm -hmm. So in some ways you could argue, or, you know, this is a contentious argument, but some people might argue, well, it was probably better, if you like, if you can see it as better or worse, than going to jail, or being because previously it was either seen as a criminal or a moral issue. So seeing it as a psychological issue is probably no better or worse. It's another way of pathologizing somebody, um, but it's not necessarily, you know, it it differed in its approach, if you, if you like. But we didn't really, it didn't necessarily conform to what we expected. You know, we didn't know what we'd, we'd find, to be honest, but we felt it was important. We also found that a lot of lesbian survivors um, were very active in contesting um, the pathologization of male homosexuality as well. They were kind of key kind of activists um, in that field. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by that, you know, by, by the history of activism, I guess, and, right. and what it sort of shows up and how we can understand how to, how to institute change, if you like. You wrote about the minimal, did a review of the minimal medication approaches uh, for schizophrenia. Um, I think it's a 2009 paper. Uh, could you just tell us what you, what you found and wh- wh- why did you think it was important to kind of work on this, to write about it and research it? Yeah, so, I mean, when I, I mentioned earlier that there's, you know, there's not that many, you know, there's a lot of disagreement amongst psychiatric survivors, service users, people with psychosocial disabilities. Um, I think one of the things that tends to be, not total agreement on, but pretty much a lot of agreement on, is the need for alternatives to inpatient treatment, um, particularly for, for people who are experiencing psychosis or, you know, non-consensual reality or whatever you want, want to call those experiences. 
And that's something I was always really passionate about as well, the need for genuine asylum for people to go through. And I wrote this other paper, I think before that, around, you know, trying to explore whether people could, should, should have a right to go through psychosis with minimal medication and maximum support. Did these people have a right to that or not? So I wanted to sort of explore that. And I've always been really passionate that we, you know, we should be able to provide these kind of um, spaces. So... Lauren Mosher, who was, you know, the key figure around uh, Soteria House in the States, came to the UK in about 2003, I think a year before he died, or, or, or maybe the year he died, actually, um, and inspired us, really. So he came and did a few meetings in the UK, and I, I went to one of them, and he inspired us to try and set up a Soteria network in the UK, which is still going today. We're still sort of struggling to set up a Soteria House. Um, so we I wanted to... Um, I guess, to, to look at, to revisit, you know, what Soteria House was about, the original Soteria House. We enlisted somebody to do a systematic, someone who was really skilled at doing a systematic review to revisit some of the data around Soteria. Because one of the things we wanted to know was, you know, if we're going to set up a network and set something up, you know, there was something about, I mean, I'm very critical of looking at evidence-based sort of stuff, but it felt important to know, you know, what research was there. Because it was set up, originally Soteria was set up as a research project. So there was obviously some research around there. We wanted to just re-look at it. So, and we did, um, and we found, you know, that one of the things was that it was as, at least as um, effective as mainstream treatment, as least, so probably, and I think that's important. It wasn't necessarily better, but it was as least, um, if, at least as effective, which I think is really important sort of nuance. And, um, but it was important because if we could show that not giving people medication was as effective as giving medical and put them, putting them in hospital, then that says something quite important because if people end up on long-term anti-psychotics, anti that can have all sorts of long-term impacts. So that was the kind of thinking behind that, really. And 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 we used it in the Styrian Network. We produced an early booklet and we went round commissioners to see whether to try and see whether anyone was interested. Because at the time, of course, a lot of closing down inpatient wards, less and less beds, and and sometimes there was opportunities to do something different. Right. So we'd often, and one of the things, if we used that systematic review, if you like, wave it around, it might help. It was one strategy of many. We sort of knew really, I mean, my, my experience of, the therapeutic community movement was that using evidence like that isn't always effective because if the again if the broader context doesn't support that sort of thing like therapeutic communities and collective approaches if the broader culture doesn't support that then it doesn't matter what evidence you throw at it's not it's not going to happen but we thought it was one thing we could do um, amongst many um, so that was the kind of thinking behind that really you're right you know you you kind of had this review and you kind of knew that it might not do much but now that I look at um, the, the massive voices in the field of psychiatry that are coming out and saying things are off, maybe, hopefully, in a way, the reviews did help, right? I mean, there is Alan Francis and Robin Murray, and there yeah, are other exactly. big figures, right? So maybe maybe we wore people down and they revisited their own evidence. And <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing we tried to do. We wanted to get it in a big, high-hitting, because it was in, in a very big, it was schizophrenia bulletin, I think. Yeah. That's the paper you're referring to. There was another one we had in um, Advances in Psychiatric Treatment or something like that. So we wanted to put it in a, something where it might be read by people who would have influence. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know. I doubt it had much impact. But like you say, you never know. You know, you know sometimes it's just about one individual reading something and it makes, uh, who knows? I mean, it was one thing we tried to do amongst many. Um, there's lots of other things that were probably much more effective, but 
you know, <laughs> one thing I was involved in. Well, um, that's that. That is it for today. Thank you so much. This was so great. Thank you. Thank you for you know doing this with us. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.